This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, we do often talk about anything we damn well please on this show, but we're here to tell you that isn't as easy as it sounds, because they're really an infinity of topics out there that we might kick around on a public affairs show. We're not uh, trying to consciously imitate the Daily Show and such in terms of perusing the headlines and commenting on it, but we do have to admire one great Will Rogers quote on this subject. Rogers once said, I don't make jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. So I want to start today by noting how dismayed we are at watching the facts as they evolve over in Iraq. There seems to be a real danger that Islamic fundamentalists may overrun the country. These are Islamic fundamentalists allied with religious zealots from Syria. Now, not only is Iraq the country we invaded on bogus pretenses 10 years ago, but Syria is the country we've been trying to destabilize with a lot of secret arms, shipments, and aid to rebels, etc. In this cauldron of chaos... These fundamentalists have gained ever more power because, let's face it, the population is a little dissatisfied with what we've started. It does make us ponder, take a deep breath, and contemplate that quote we've mentioned many times in the show from George Santayana, which is that those who do not know the past are condemned to repeat it. Sadly, we're concluding that those who do know the past are nevertheless condemned to repeat it. And to address that topic, I want to look back at the Vietnam War and take a quote out of Anthony Summers' great book on Richard Nixon, The Arrogance of Power. In his chapter, which outlines how Richard Nixon sent an emissary over to the South Vietnamese government to tell them to sabotage the peace talks as the election in 1968 was looming, because the prospect of peace was not going to help Richard Nixon's candidacy. He told Nguyen Van Tu to hold off because he'd get a better deal from him, Nixon. Which is itself an event so treasonous and horrible we should probably devote a whole show to it, but it won't be today's show. But Nixon was elected back in 1968 with vague promises to end the war in Vietnam. In fact, he was pretty hawkish on the whole affair and stretched the war out for many years under his watch. In fact, the war only ended during Nixon's second term. But to quote from Anthony Summers, under Nixon, the Vietnam War was to burn on for four more agonizing years. A second country, Cambodia, would be secretly drawn into the conflict, eventually to be overwhelmed by the cataclysm of revolution that was to take close to two million lives. Nixon would repeatedly punish North Vietnam with bombing more prolonged and devastating than any that had gone before. Under Nixon, and in the name of the quest for an honorable peace, 20,763 more Americans died, more than a third of the total killed during the entire period of U.S. commitment. 109,000 South Vietnamese soldiers died, as did some 496,000 of the communist enemy, as well as unknown thousands, if not millions, of innocent civilians. Noted Summers, some commentators, Nixon included, have argued that his extension of the conflict was justified that the struggle prevented the other Southeast Asian countries from falling to communism. In old age, Nixon persistently made the case that had Congress not eventually withdrawn funding and support, the two government would have survived. The case for the contrary seems equally compelling. 
to innumerable men and women who served in Vietnam or who observed the war as diplomats and journalists, the corrupt Southern regime never deserved the sacrifice that was made in democracy's name. In the field, thousands of miles from the talking shops of Washington, many, including this author in 1969, had rated Vietnam's prospect of ever surviving on its own as practically nil. To such critics, the shame is not merely that the struggle was to no avail. It is that the peace with honor, won, as Nixon put it, was in no meaningful way any more worthwhile than the settlement that seemed possible had the 1968 Johnson Peace Initiative succeeded. Henry Kissinger, soon to find fame as National Security Advisor and later Secretary of State, offered a cynical assessment of the administration's position a few months after meeting Nixon. Said Kissinger, I agree that the war is a mistake. I think it is clear now that we should never have gone in there, and I don't see how any good can come of it. But we can't do what's recommended and just pull out, because the boss's whole constituency would just fall apart. Those are his people who support the war effort. The South, the blue-collar Democrats in the North. The Nixon constituency is behind the war effort. If we were to pull out of Vietnam, there would be a disaster politically for us here at home. I think we can take it from Henry Kissinger that that's why wars persist. Well, actually, that's half the reason. There's the political part of it, and then there's the money part of it. Great fortunes are always made by war, and thus there's a built-in constituency to... Have them and continue them. I think we should move off this topic and into uh, the method by which we normally start this program, which is to cite on this date in history. Our date in question today is the 19th of June. We are damn near at the longest day of the year here in the Northern Hemisphere, which comes on Saturday. Thinking of the heavens, we would note that it was on June 19th in 240 BC that the great Greek geographer and mathematician Eratosthenes estimated the circumference of the earth. He did so by comparing the angle of the sun in Aswan in Egypt to what it was in Greece. His estimate was very good. He was only off by a few percentage points. Although once Christianity came to dominate Western civilization, uh, the idea of a round earth of a certain diameter fell by the wayside because the Bible described the earth as being flat, which caused some religious authorities, according to Mr. Melin, to just assume that Eratosthenes was talking out his Aswan. By the way, apparently one in four Americans still believes, as it describes in the Bible, that the sun goes around the earth. Moving right along, it was on June 19th in 1867 that the Austrian Archduke Maximilian, who had proclaimed himself Emperor of Mexico after an international debt-collecting expedition, uh, basically seized the, Mexico, seized the Mexican capital in June of 1863, was executed by his unhappy subjects. Evidently under pressure from the U.S., Napoleon III in France had withdrawn his support for Emperor Maximilian, who refused to abdicate and assumed that his people loved him, an assumption that was to prove incorrect. And it was on June 19th in 1948 during the Cold War that the U.S. Congress enacted the first peacetime selective service. This required all men between the ages of 19 and 25 to register for the draft. This date in 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were convicted of conspiring to pass U.S. atomic secrets to the Soviets, were executed at Sing Sing Prison in New York. Seems pretty clear in retrospect that Julius was guilty, but Ethel may not have been guilty of anything more than knowing about what was going on. At any rate, the Rosenbergs were certainly not the main players 
in the theft of U.S. atomic secrets, which is something else we could probably do a whole show on, but not today. And finally, it was on June 19th in 1961 that Great Britain's empire in the Middle East continued to shrink as it removed Kuwait's protectorate status, but pledged military aid to the oil-rich nation. Six days later, Iraq claimed sovereignty over the country, which, by the way, it had always held until the British stepped in. This little matter of who controls the oil in Kuwait uh, caused the first Gulf War back in the 1990s. The U.S. government signaled Saddam Hussein that if he were to move against Kuwait, the U.S. government would consider it a local matter. And then once he did, stepping into the trap, the first George Bush called it naked aggression, compared him to Hitler, and started a war. Only to call it off four days later, leading directly to the second Gulf War under his near-do-well, nitwit son. All right, I think we better lighten the mood here a bit. And to do so, uh, we should refer to the fact that it was uh, Father's Day last Sunday, and hopefully a lot of you who still have fathers were able to celebrate. We hope so. And to look back at that occasion, I think I would quote from our favorite blog. In fact, it's the only blog we rely upon for this program, Mark Evanier's News From Me. Said Mark, under the title of Tales of My Father, I have written here many times of how my father hated his job. He spent 25 years working for the Internal Revenue Service, loathing every nanosecond. He was bothered by the grief he sometimes had to bring upon people who were in serious financial trouble. He was annoyed by the way his superiors sometimes treated him. He was frustrated how there seemed to be two sets of rules as to whom had to pay delinquent taxes. Rich folks with friends in Washington, i.e. Richard Nixon, or sometimes friends in Sacramento, i.e. Ronald Reagan, often did not. Poor people with no connections, of course, always did. They were treated like criminals, whereas the friends of Dick and or Ron had to be coddled like royalty and remain unthreatened. On several occasions after my father made a routine call on a friend of Dick and or Ron about owing a vast amount to Uncle Sam, the bill would be torn up and my father would be ordered to apologize to the rich guy for upsetting him so. But the poor mother always had to pay or else. You'd have to be a bit of a psychopath not to hate being in his position, but it had to be done and my father had to earn a living. Before that, he had an array of short-term jobs that weren't as stable. The IRS was nothing if not stable, and which he didn't like a whole lot more. He'd worked for a number of times at the administration office of a hospital and couldn't stand having to take paperwork to people who were injured and suffering. None of them were the kind of careers you dream of having. They were the kind of jobs you take because you can't get one of the kind you dream about. And I think the thing he liked least about them was that they all had firm, concrete ceilings. When you fantasize about what you want to do with your life, you usually pick something that could, at least in theory, make you very wealthy. My father never had one of those jobs. He had ones that by their very nature excluded that possibility. They were jobs where if you did them better than anyone else had ever done them, you might be able to get a $10 raise next year. Might. It was tough to accept that limitation on your life. None of this should suggest that he was not on the balance a happy man. He loved, not necessarily in this order, his home, his wife, his son, and our cat. He had a life that was largely free of tragedy and disaster. Once he signed on with the IRS, he never had to worry about paying the mortgage, buying food and clothing, offering a car, etc. He had a wonderful health insurance plan that covered him, his spouse, and his kid. And the only thing wrong with it was it didn't cover the cat. 
Apart from paying off the house and for a time my orthodontia, he was free of debt. There's a lot to be said for that. There is a lot to be said about that. We're going to talk about student debt, the crushing burden of student debt before this program's over. But since we're starting this program in a rather snarky mood, before moving on to our quote of the day, etc., I do want to note that uh, last week a Senate panel ripped Dr. Oz for the dubious benefits he claims certain weight loss products will provide. Products that he officially endorses with his name on the label. Products that he shills on his nationally syndicated daytime TV show. I want to quote from what Democratic Senator Clara McCaskill, the chairwoman of the Commerce Committee on Consumer Protection, had to say, which was, I don't get why you say this stuff because you know it's not true. So why, when you have this amazing megaphone and this amazing ability to communicate, why do you cheapen your show by saying things like that? Apparently the panel was particularly irritated about Dr. Oz's endorsement of some green coffee beans that he claims produce incredible weight loss. In fact, lawmakers at the hearing specifically took aim at Oz's promotion of pure green coffee beans, which claims to help losers lose 20 pounds in four weeks and 16% of body fat in three months. The FTC has sued the product's Florida-based makers as of this May. Dr. Oz tried to defend himself, saying, My job, I feel, on the show is to be a cheerleader for the audience when they don't think they have hope and they don't think they can make it happen. It jumpstarts you. It gives you the confidence to keep going. To which McCaskill replied, The scientific community is almost monolithic against you in terms of the efficacy of the three products you call miracles. When you call a product a miracle, and it's something you can buy, and it's something that gives people false hopes, I just don't understand why you need to go there. Noted the Gawker website, although Oz told the panel that he does actually, quote, believe, unquote, in the products he hawks on the show, and that he's even given them to his own family. Michael Spector's profile for The New Yorker noted that uh, Oz doesn't follow any of the miracle cures or health fads he trots out so regularly for his audience. So while we don't think Dr. Oz has the answer, we need to talk about obesity. And that's something else we're going to do before this hour is up. But let's get back on track of how we usually like to start this program, including our quip of the day, including our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from author Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who once said, if you don't feel that you haven't read enough, you haven't read enough. Our quip of the day comes from Sylvester Stallone, which has got to be a first who said, if you think people are inherently good, get rid of the police for 24 hours. See what happens. Our jokes of the day come first from the writers for Conan O'Brien, who said, hey, America's in the World Cup. Did you even know that? Experts say they have less than a 1% chance of winning the World Cup, and even their coach said winning is not realistic at all. All of which sounds like one hell of a pregame pep talk, And from the writers for Seth Meyers, we have this. A man in Virginia Beach has started protesting road conditions while dressed as Spider-Man on his days off. Something tells me, said Meyers, that he has a lot of days off. Our anecdote of the week concerns President Barack Obama, who went down for the commencement at UC Irvine last week, at which time he ridiculed members of Congress for denying climate change or pleading scientific ignorance as an alibi for avoiding what he termed as an inconvenient truth. Speaking to a crowd of about 30,000 at Angel Stadium, 
50 years after President Lyndon Johnson spoke of the dedication of the campus, the president likened those who deny climate change to people who would have told President John F. Kennedy at the dawn of the space program that the moon was made of cheese. The president also said he'd hit upon a novel way to speed up the nation's response from hurricanes, floods, droughts, tornadoes, wildfires, mudslides, and other natural disasters. Make states and cities compete for a $1 billion pot. Obama announced the competition, which would award funds to state and local authorities with the most innovative plans for rebuilding in a way that protects against future disasters. I'm pretty sure that our efforts here in the Sacramento area to build up the Delta so that we can do yet more real estate speculation and development in the Natomas Basin probably won't qualify for that pot. And if I may digress a minute on the subject of natural disasters, and since it's our show, I guess we get to, we have to cite this, this new research reported by the Washington Post last week, which shows that Americans are less frightened of storms bearing female names, which leads to less preparedness and subsequently more fatalities. The study looked at the number of deaths caused by hurricanes between 1950 and 2012, revealing that storms with female names caused an average of 45 deaths compared with 23 deaths from male name storms. These stats did deliberately exclude Hurricanes Katrina and Audrey. Researchers surveyed hundreds of people to gauge their reaction to hypothetical storms of different genders. Participants consistently predicted that male hurricanes would be more intense and those imagining a Hurricane Christina were not as willing to evacuate as those contemplating a Hurricane Christopher. Said University of Illinois professor Sharon Slavitt, the stereotypes that underlie these judgments are subtle and not necessarily hostile towards women. They may involve viewing women as warmer and less aggressive than men. It should be noted that hurricanes had only female names until 1979. Increasing awareness of sexism, however, prompted officials to institute alternating female-male names. I know, Mr. Millen, I don't know what to do if they have uh, a name that go either way, like Hurricane Pat. All right, we have several stats of the day, starting with the fact that Alex Trebek has now set the Guinness World Record for most game show episodes hosted by the same presenter. Last Friday, Alex Trebek hosted 6,829 episodes of Jeopardy, which has been in its current form since 1984. The show is in its 30th season and will begin its 31st season come September. But news reports did note that the 73-year-old Trebek is Jeopardy's second host. The original incarnation ran from 1964 to 1979 and was hosted by Art Fleming. Our second stat is that according to NPR.com, mental illness reduces life expectancy by 10 to 20 years. God our second statistic is that according to NPR.com, mental illness reduces life expectancy by 10 to 20 years, more than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. How about this from the New York Times? The cable news audience is getting old. The average Fox News viewer is aged 68.8, with the audience of star host Bill O'Reilly even older, a median age of 72.1. In May, the median age for MSNBC was reported as 62.5, and for CNN, 62.8. And speaking of older folks, according to TheWire.com, for the first time since 1947, 
America's most common age is no longer a part of the baby boom generation. New Census Bureau data shows that 22-year-olds are now the most numerous age group in America, followed by 23-year-olds and then 21-year-olds. In fourth, 53-year-olds. And for our good news for today's program, we would note that Sacramento Bee reporter Sam McManus has won first place for Features Specialty Reporting Portfolio in the 26th Annual Society for Features Journalism Contest. The national organization announced this last Monday. Among the stories for which McManus, who covers travel for the Bee's California Traveler section, among the stories for which McManus, who covers travel for the Bee's Sacramento Traveler section, was recognized was a homeless tour of the San Francisco Tenderloin, a silent retreat near Nevada City, and a boat trip to the Farallon Islands. Said the SFJ judges, With details and fine writing, Sam McManus transports readers to each place he writes about. In fact, we wanted to cite Sam McManus's piece on visiting a sauna in San Francisco a few weeks ago. It was a Russian sauna. When I saw the headline, I wondered at the time this was the same sauna my Russian friend Misha Brodsky had put together. And in fact, it was. Misha has appeared on this program in the past to talk about uh, things Russian. I believe we had him on talking about what it meant to be in Russia when Yuri Gagarin orbited the Earth and changed everybody's view of the space race. But uh, we do appreciate Sam's excellent writing, and I was, <laughs> have certainly been shamed into realizing that I have to go check out that sauna, which I've been promising to do for years now. Medical authorities are coming to recognize that saunas do have a, uh, a good effect on human health. And when we finally get around to talking about that, I do want to tell my tale of being in a Moscow sauna back in the waning days of the Soviet Union. My host there in the USSR was the aforementioned Misha Brodsky, and it was an experience which I'm never going to forget. The heat inside that sauna was at first a bit scary, but since I noticed that nobody else was dropping dead around me, I thought I could stand it a bit more. But that's a story, I think, for another day. And we are... We have used up the whole first segment here and haven't even got to the good and the bad and the ugly, which we will, I think, defer to segment number two. Let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we got plenty more to talk about. Stick around. Yes, 